Hi, this is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster, and this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today on the podcast, we will be interviewing Jeff Russo, Star Trek composer. You can't even nail him to one show anymore. Right. <laughs> but first, uh, let's dig into some news, starting with our blabby, blabby friend, John Delancey. So Trek Movie's been kind of keeping an eye on John Delancey's cameo, which we've talked about before. It's how we first learned he was even going to be on Picard. Last week, we talked about some of the things he had said after it was revealed he was going to be part of Star Trek Picard Season 2. Um, and he's still talking. So I guess he – and what's funny is he he does all these cameos, and in every single one, without being prompted – he just starts talking about being on Star Trek Picard. I think he's just really excited about it. He's super excited and he just keeps talking about how he's annoying uh, Patrick Stewart as well as Jean-Luc. <laughs> but then he, he he's every once in a while starts actually saying something like that's like fun. Like, ha I'm annoying Picard and, you know, right. we're all having fun on set. But then he says something like, oh, that's actual interesting factual news. So in one cameo, he says how he has this back and forth with Patrick Stewart, the actor, where Patrick's asking him, how long are you going to be here? Meaning on the set for Star Trek Picard, because he's being so annoying, right, as Q. <laughs> um, and he reveals in this cameo, he's, he's going to be doing six episodes. I mean, I can't tell if he was joking. It seemed like very sincere the way he said it. That's what I was wondering, like, is he just, you know, more tormenting by saying six episodes <laughs> because they're, what, 10 in a season? Right. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's lot. a lot. Of that's almost as many episodes as he was in over the entire run of The Next Generation. Yeah. So we talked about this last week of Q's great in small doses. So if he's in six episodes, I hope he's... Like bookending the episodes, yeah. like he, he's talked about how he's working with Patrick Stewart. I know he's going to work with the rest of the cast. So yeah, I think uh, he's a bigger part of this season than we realized for sure. He also said something I thought was really interesting, which was um, he said, I don't particularly put humanity on trial as much as I put Picard on trial. And, you know, we've been sort of speculating, is this going to be sort of an it's a wonderful life thing for Picard, maybe with Q or Shades of... Um, tapestry something like that so this feels more along those lines that it's very personal to picard like the whole show is really which again is something that i've always said it has to be yeah we we can't have picard and crew dealing with the federation crisis of the week you know only it has to be something that is about him that you know because his name's in the show but this isn't the next next generation it it shouldn't be that show. Um, the Starfleet exists, you know, they could bring back Riker um, to deal with whatever, you know, trouble is on the border. So, uh, you know, and, and, and now the personal story of Picard could have important galactic implications as season one showed with the whole, the synth thing and the Romulans and even the Exborgs. Um, so, I don't know. You know, this all adds up to something good, even though Q annoying Picard sounds kind of like the good old days. Delancey also said this is a very different Q and 
they, meaning the writers, wanted to go with not kidding around so much. So this, again, goes into the, the tone of Picard is a more serious show. It's more serious and it's more personal. I mean, it's yeah. called Picard and it's very much about about him specifically and his inner life, pardon the expression, um, as much as uh, as much as anything, as much as what's going on around him. How it affects right. him internally is a big part of it. So that kind of interaction with Q makes a lot of sense. Uh, although he did say that there is there are both meaty scenes and scenery chewing, which, of course, is classic <laughs> Q. Yes. So, well, you can't expect there to be none. There's another little bit of Picard news, which is LeVar Burton has revised his answer on if he's going to appear in season two of Picard. So he was a maybe last week. This week, he's a no. So, Tony, do you think that that's because they're shooting, they're trying to do the two seasons sort of back to back? And so talking to someone about appearing could have been unclear about which season? I'm sure that when they were talking last April for the first time, they were talking about him appearing in the show, but they were still just breaking the show. They hadn't, I think, started writing episodes. And as we know, they've done a lot of rewrites. So I think they were basically saying, yeah, we'll put you in the show. We just don't know when. Right. And right. so this was on an interview on The View and he was being asked by Whoopi Goldberg. So I guess he figured it's Whoopi. I'm going to be honest. So he's, but then he got weirdly loyal. He's like, I'm not in season two. <laughs> and she's like, okay, so you're going to be there eventually. Basically. I think he said it's reasonable to assume all of show up eventually. Right. I think he was saying, he said, these people are still in his life. They're still his friends. So it makes sense that they'd show up. Yeah. So he's not just talking about him himself because there's a couple other people. There's obviously Gates McFadden, who you talked to last year. She says she expects to be on the show. I don't think she's going to be on in season two, but uh, we could ask her next week. because She's going to be our guest on All Access Star Trek next week, right? Yes. Exciting. So they're not going to have... Uh, Jordy and probably Beverly in season two, but they're going to have Q and you know I, I I doubt Frakes and Marina show up again, but I don't know they could maybe. I feel like Frakes will show up at some point, and I hope Marina too. But I'm going to guess that we know Frakes, he's directing. Right, he's around. They're talking to him <laughs> all the time, so it seems logical that if they just they were like, oh, we could do this here. It seems like something they do, and he had fun. Yeah. Now putting a button on the. The thing that people briefly thought Michael Dorn was going to be in Picard because he did that viral campaign last week. We said, we're almost certain it's this game, Star Trek Legends. Now we are certain because after our podcast came out, the final piece of that viral campaign came out. So check the show notes, go to the site. You could see the little video. So that one one week, the week of Dorn viral is over <laughs> and uh, we could all we could all <laughs> move on. It was all for a game. And it worked. So congratulations. Yeah, he had a lot of fun with that, obviously. So you can't blame him for enjoying himself. There's a little bit of news this week, not news per se, because there's an article we put up from a documentary we haven't talked about on this podcast because uh, when we first reported on TrekMovie.com, this podcast didn't exist, um, which was a year ago. Uh, we did an article on a documentary called In Search of Tomorrow. And it's this documentary all about 1980s sci-fi. And if you think about the 1980s and science fiction movie, there's never been a better decade. Yeah, agreed. And I'm not an 80s fan generally, but sci-fi wise, it was a good time. 
and genre genre stuff in general. So the, this team made a documentary all about horror science fiction in that period uh, a couple of years ago called In Search of Darkness. And, it, you know, if you're a horror fan, you know, they just talked to everyone who's still alive about that. It got a lot of good reviews. Um, that was crowdfunded. This was this is also being crowdfunded. Um, but these guys seem to have their stuff together. The plan is to have this movie out by December. There's a ton of clips on the web. There's a really good trailer you can check out in our article. And they gave us a clip of Walter Koenig talking about Star Trek II. And it's interesting to hear him talk about Shatner and yeah. Mont- Montauban. Because you know he's no, he's not good close with Bill. But he is fast to admit that you know Bill's perfect for the role and the kind of overtop, over-the-top stuff works for that movie for both Montalban and Shatner. Yeah, I think he's cuz he talks about how great Montalban was and then he says something like Shatner's no slouch or something like that, which right. high praise coming from him. So and they they have interviews with other people related to Star Trek including behind the scenes people like Dykstra and you know uh, Nicholas they're going to they've talked to Nicholas Meyer and this thing's going to be 4 hours long. It's it's if you look at their last documentary, this is another one of those things of that probably should be a documentary series. It's not a normal, like, simple documentary with a beginning, middle, and end. It's just really long, and it's it's you know, but it's worth checking out if you're a genre fan. And so I'm looking forward to insert to tomorrow. So check out the that show notes for the clip. It's not clear how this is going to be distributed eventually, but initially for it's going to be one of those backers get to see it first thing. So if you want to get on board, you could check out their Indiegogo page. Okay, so let's talk about Star Trek Discovery before we move on to the Jeff Russo interview. There's a couple little bits of news. First is right after our podcast came out last week, another piece of news came out. All the trades were reporting this, that the Star Trek Discovery set in Toronto had to be shut down for two weeks because of a offset contact. So this, this was done via contact tracing. So someone in, what do they call it? Zone A. Zone A is like the, the main cast, probably like director, executive, but like the sort of essential core people. I believe. If you guys remember a few weeks ago, some guest actor tested positive on Strange New Worlds, and they basically isolated that guy and anyone that guy talked to, and they just kept on rolling. So whoever that guy talked to obviously wasn't Anson Mount or anyone that they need every day, right? So Right. They said there were a couple of crew members, I think, that they also just stayed away for a couple of weeks. Um, in this case, that Zone A individual is now in quarantine for two weeks. But no one else on on the show is in quarantine. But they did shut down the whole thing for two weeks. And I mean, one thing to keep in mind is this is in Toronto, which is having a surge of cases and is under very strict, I mean, in my opinion, as someone with family there, perhaps a little too strict um, orders because people it's a stay at home order. Even, you know, the, when the cast is there and things are good, they're still like the minute they're done, they basically just go back to their hotels and they're not even hanging out together. It's only two weeks. Um, I mean, I, I get wanting to stop anything before it gets out of hand. So that part is smart, yeah. I guess. But they've been shooting since November. And we talked about before where they have the AR wall this year. 
Um, and there was a lot of lead time leading up to the show, which means you could actually do post-production work before the show even starts. So I think we're still going to get a release in 2021. So in, in a way, this doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, it's just the world we live in now. The last bit of Discovery-related news and news for the week is related to Michelle Yeoh, who was on the Pod Directive, which is the official Star Trek podcast, which is hosted by Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins. Really, it's a really good, solid podcast, don't you think? Yeah, no, I actually, the first episode of this season, the one with Paul Shear, I thought was fantastic. So, I, yeah, I've been enjoying it. They're doing a good job and they're they're switching it up. They're doing a lot of different things and having some different people on there. And their interview with, with Michelle, I found really intriguing in some ways. The thing we kind of narrowed down is late in the podcast, Paul F. Tompkins asked Michelle Yeoh basically what happens to Giorgio after she goes through the Guardian of Forever, a.k.a. Carl. Carl. So she talked for like four or five minutes and used a lot of words and said a lot of things about life and, and you know, just, you know, people making decisions and redemption. And so it took a little while to kind of suss out exactly what she was saying, but she broke it down into a couple things where she basically said, well, you know, she went through, Georgia went through the Guardian twice and she portrays the first one as essentially saying that it's a test. Carl tested her worthiness and she passed. Every time you say Carl, it makes me laugh. And the worthiness was about her desire to change rather than her successful transition into being a good person. In her mind, and since she obviously talks to the producers and they talk about character motivations and arcs, I think, and we've talked about this before, that they they seem to think that at least she does because she uses the term redemption. Um, she, you know, uh, says we we all hope that there's redemption and we'll be given a second chance to redeem ourselves. So she she was given the second chance and she redeemed herself because this has always been the fundamental issue with you know with the character is you know is she quote unquote space Hitler or is she a sympathetic protagonist? Right, and like you know? a product of her environment to some degree. Right, which she also talked about. That she basically kind of forgives her by saying, "Look, you know, she had to do what she had to do because that's just the way things get done." But she's not fundamentally a bad person, right? And also, I would say not so much just the way things get done, which just sounds like a great excuse, but also how she was raised and the world she was living in. Which I think that's what you mean. But I just want to be sort of clear that it's not whatever. It's not like everybody's doing it so much as like this is the harsh world, and these are. Uh, this is the way of life here, and and the character would have been unaware of other options, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, it's a tough one for me because as I was listening to that, I always felt like that redemption wasn't there. And when I listened to her describing it, I thought, well, I mean, you could point to individual moments and go, look, it's there. It's there. But – I feel like on the show, they did it in a very skim the surface kind of way. And even just hearing her talk about it felt deeper than what I actually saw. There's the what they wanted to do and did they pull it off? So, but clearly what they wanted to do in season three of Discovery was, quote, redeem George O. And I think they made a lot of movement towards that. 
they may or may not believe that they pulled it off, but that certainly was the goal. She certainly sees it that way. So that that's the first trip through. The second trip through was the, the goodbye trip, which is really what Paul F. Tompkins was asking about. Right. And um, she said that wasn't goodbye. It was until we meet again. And, you know, saying that she expects to come back. And she talks about how maybe one day Giorgio will have to come back to Discovery to rescue Michael Burnham from some kind of crisis. And she also said, or the other way around. Didn't understand what that meant, but I guess Michael would have to go to wherever she is. Right. Carl could go get her. (laughs) The most specific thing she said was, I think there's so much more possibilities for Jojo. And I know my executive producers, Mm -hmm. you know, she owns Alex Kurtzman and Michelle Paradise, apparently, <laughs> um, and showrunners. And again, and in this case, I believe she's talking about Erica Lipold and Bo Young Kim, right? And writers, which is, you know, everyone else, have a lot more things in store for such an amazing character. So she's basically saying, yeah, they're cooking things up for Giorgio. I feel like this opens up a lot of possibilities. So, I mean, first of all, very tellingly, this is the official Star Trek podcast, and they didn't say, hey, what's up with your Section 31 show? So it was obviously something they were not supposed to talk about because there's no concrete information. I mean, I've been saying on this podcast for a while that I don't think the Section 31 show is the Section 31 show. I think that's what they were calling it in 2000. When did they announce it? 2019, early 2019, before season two started, where they're basically saying, at this point, we've defined this character as a Section 31 agent, and they're, and we're going to make a show, and therefore, people started calling it the Section 31 show. Um, and and, the, and the, the press release referred to her being part of Section 31, but she stopped being part of section 31 when they jumped into the future she is no longer part of section 31 now she could always go back to that but this show has always been the michelle yo emperor Giorgio show for wherever she goes and for whatever she does but they didn't mention that she never mentioned it and i gotta be honest i'm a lot more interested in a show about this woman who's jumping around from place to place and time to time like if she's sort of part of the what were they called? The temporal, that's not police, is the wrong, oh, I forget what they were called. But anyway, like the people who are in charge of sort of the temporal rules of <laughs> people messing up time. Like, to, I mean, not, I don't want to see her going to people and chastising them. What I would like to see is the idea that she's going to different places and times and trying to fix things, restore timelines. There's something more interesting about that. And it also means she could show up on Picard and she could show up on Strange New Worlds. She could pop in anywhere well the from a production point of view there's two possibilities here one is that michelle yo leads a tv series a star trek tv series whether that's a section 31 series or department of temporal investigation series thank you um (laughs) no problem um you know but it's some kind of show she's the star other people are involved um and it's set in, you know, multiple timelines or maybe set back in the 23rd. Who knows? Then the other possibility is that that show just doesn't exist, that they've just given up on. I mean, so let, let I mean, let's, you know, Alex Kurtzman uh, in the summer of last year was talking about 
all the cool stuff the writers were coming up for that show. There was a writer's room. A pilot has been written. It was supposed to be shot in 2020. And even though the pandemic got in the way, they are making three Star Trek shows now, not one of which is the Michelle Yeoh show. So you can't blame the pandemic for them not moving forward with the show. Dave decided to move forward with Strange New Worlds. And it's sort of been implied that they're not going to do another live action Star Trek show in addition to the three they've got going until one of those shuts down, which is probably Picard after season three, because they've said that that show's kind of got a three season run. Right. Um, so is a Michelle Yeoh show the next show or is it going to be something else? So if the Michelle Yeoh show isn't the next show, but they still want to use the character, then they're kind of now you could just start popping her in and out of any of the shows because Carl essentially allows you to put her anywhere. And that could be used as a springboard. Like they could also wait till they're ready to go with her show and start her off in some episodes there. I mean, there there are so many possibilities, but to me, a lot more interesting than just section 31. Right. They could backdoor pilot her by having her show up in multiple shows or even just in one show where they kind of establish other characters from her show. They establish Carl again as, you know, part of her thing whatever her thing is. So I don't think we've seen the last of her, but I seriously doubt that the next Star Trek show is a Michelle Yeoh section 31 agent show. I just don't think that's happening. I think they've changed their minds. They moved on from that idea and they don't know what to do, um, but they still want to use the character. And I think they must have some ideas that they're maybe discussing with her. She seems to feel confident that there's some fun plans in store. There was one other thing from that interview that I found interesting. I'm curious to get your opinion on it. So she talks about that moment when when uh, Kovic says to Emperor, he says, you know, we haven't heard from the Terrans in in 500 years. And so when I heard that on the show, I assumed that had, uh, especially when they gave us more information later, that that had to do with the distance. They talked about the distance between the prime and mirror and how that was making her sick because the distance was so, there was a time issue, but also the two universes had had grown much farther apart. But the way that she said Giorgio, Giorgio immediately understood it was that they'd wiped themselves out. And I'm curious if you got that the first time you watched it. Well, I I don't think the she meant that the universe itself ceased to exist as much as the the Terrans, the Terrans specifically. The Terran Empire fell as empires do. And I mean, she she was talking about it more related to for my listening to proof of the redemption arc in that that was a kind of final straw for the character to realize that the way she was doing things in the Terran empire um, as the emperor was a failure and that, you know, there had to be another way, which is why when she went back, she tried, I mean, she was killing people, but she was trying also <laughs> for peaceful. I mean, she, you know, she, she, you know, is baby steps, right? I so was just going to say baby steps. <laughs> Little you emperor know. baby steps. <laughs> you know, so slightly less evil. Um, but <laughs> in, in, in the way she described it, she's like, she thought there was a pe- – she could try the peaceful way. And that the, in the in the trying, 
that was how she was redeemed. So I think I, I'm not sure there was something specific about how it would relate to her own show and when she would show up, if she would show up to try to prevent that Terran empire falling. I think that was, I don't think we're, I, I don't think whatever she's going to do in her show has anything to do with the mirror universe, ironically. Right. No. And I agree with you on that. But I just found it an interesting thought that the I didn't immediately think, oh, the Terrans destroyed themselves and they're gone. And it seems like she did. To her, that was a pivotal moment with a very important piece of information that shifted her thinking. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things that if I had felt that at the time, it would have felt more powerful to me. I guess I picked up on that in that episode of Discovery when he said that, you know, I thought that was kind of a big piece of information that they had wiped themselves out, you know, maybe some kind of galactic bomb, you know, or something, you know, some kind of Armageddon happened within the mirror universe because they just, you know, they went down that rabbit hole so far that they all just destroyed themselves. And she realized that's the wrong that's, way that's, to do things. Right. That's the path that, that that behavior gets you to. So I feel like I got, again, like a whiff of it. But maybe it didn't um, resonate as deeply with me until I heard her talking about it this way and thought of the impact of that on the character. And part of it is that Giorgio has to hide her emotions and her feelings, her true yeah. feelings. And so maybe because of that, we don't always get to see the impact of those things on her as a person. It's right. interesting. Anyway, it made me quite thoughtful about the whole thing. I remember very much liking part one and not liking part two. And now I might go back and watch it again and see if I've changed my mind. Okay, so now we're going to run the interview Lori and I did earlier um, with Jeff Russo. You know, we, we drilled into a lot of different areas of music, but we also got into the Noah Hawley movie where he sort of generated some news. So pay close attention to that section. Also, a little bit of a warning here. This was recorded using Zoom, and so the audio is not the best. Well, the sad result is that my audio is terrible. So I'm sorry, everybody, but there's nothing we could do about it. You're we don't so know Canadian. why. I know. I'm just apologizing to everybody. <laughs> but yeah, we don't, we don't know why that happened, and we'll try to make sure that doesn't happen if we have to do another Zoom in the future, but I'm just sorry. But I feel like it's a good interview. We learn a lot about uh, the discovery process and, and he was know, how great. he makes music. Sorry, yeah. yes, and how he makes music. He was a great, I thought he was a great guy, really fun to interview, very much enjoyed talking with him. Thank you for coming. Oh, I think this is... I think this is your um, sixth interview with TrekMovie.com. <laughs> so uh, one more and you get a free sub. I'm hungry. So that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you've met me. You've met Lori, I think, at New York Comic Con or something. No, it was, it was the red carpet for season two of Discovery. 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 Yeah. Season two. Seems like forever ago. It does. Well, it uh, was several lifetimes ago, really. Yeah, it feels that way. It really does. Yeah. No red carpet for season three. Well, there was the virtual panel thing, but uh, that was it. I don't, yeah, I don't remember anything. I was stuck in a sea of trying to edit together the score from multiple <laughs> home recordings. And yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's good.
since you brought that up, I mean, I remember when we interviewed last April, you're like, oh, there's no way I could do Discovery. <laughs> you know, it's impossible. Forget it. We'll just wait until the pandemic's over. And uh, then you sort of figured it out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, figured it out to the best that we could pop, you know, possibly do it. We, we, um, we had our same orchestra, uh, but all of the orchestral players played at home. Um, and we had to edit pieces together and sort of then put it together and make it sound like uh, an orchestra was actually playing in the same room. That's, that's where it became uh, somewhat complicated. You know, when you talk about two, two musicians, four musicians, 10 musicians, 20 musicians, I mean, sometimes, you know, we had orchestras in the size of like 60 and 70 players. Um, when you have them all in a room, you know, frequencies sort of blend to become one sort of uh, overall frequency. And that doesn't happen when you are editing together from individual individual recordings. You know, what, you, what happens is you get certain frequencies and certain things start to build up because there's not that natural blending of, um, of those frequencies in the air in the room. So we have to account for all kinds. And, that, and that's just like cr- crazy technical stuff that nobody cares about. But, you know, the, the, the difficult part is just trying to make it all feel like we were all together and all in a room, because that's part of the, that's part of, you know, the thing that is really important to me in making the scores for, for Trek is to, um, they, they feel alive because they're performed by real people with people, you know, their hands on instruments. And um, I, I sort of feel like that's a definitely, definitely a big part of the sound, which is why my first response was, yeah, we'll probably wait because I know that we need to, you know, I know that we need to have those, have those players in the room, you know? Um, and it wasn't until uh, October that I started to go back into the studio with players. I, I did finally go back. I think, um, you know, I, I, I always say that I'd rather not tell when it was, I, I went back because I always want to leave it to the imagination of people who, who actually are um, think they, they know <laughs> um, to, to know like, oh yeah, I can tell the difference between what's real in the, in the room and what's pieced together. And, you know, I, I, I beg to differ. I, I, I have a feeling that most people don't know. I think that audio files might be able to pick it out and you probably wouldn't be able to pick it out on every cue because some are better than others. It really all depended on what kind of, um, what kind of piece of music it was, you know? Yeah, so, I don't think people can pick up on it. If that's truly the case, then I've I've done my job. <laughs> well, I mean, I I remember thinking, oh, we're going to probably be able to tell that there's something different about the season three score. And to be honest, I couldn't. Did you change? Because you had written a lot of it before you even started this weird recording. Um, did you change anything or did you just kind of, was it only the logistics of recording that was a, that was different or did you have to change your, you know, maybe take some things out that you couldn't do like get a chorale orchestra together or something like that. Okay. So the answer to that is no, I didn't have to change anything that I wanted to put in the score because of COVID. The only, the only, the thing that had to change was how do I do that? How do I, how do I put it in? You know, there wasn't a need for a lot of vocalists until the end of the season. And once we got there, I was able to get in a room with the vocalist. I wasn't in the actual room with her, but she was in a room behind glass and, you know, it was all totally safe. Um, so we could do the, the Andorian opera that way. And the Terran stuff, I had already recorded a bunch of, uh, of, of that material before it all happened because I knew that was sort of coming. 
Um, and with, uh, but, but other than that, I didn't really change what I wanted to do. Um, I just had to change how I did it. And, and really it went from an episode taking like 10 days to produce, not to write, but to actually produce from the time that I'm done writing to the time that I can actually hand the score to, um, to the, to the dub stage for them to put into the show is usually 10 days under normal circumstances, 10 to 14. It became, you know, closer to five weeks um, uh, because of having to edit 60 pieces, 60 individual musicians together. So that simply just takes more time. And the, the good news for me was it was taking even longer for the VFX people to do their job. And because of that, that gave me more time. <laughs> right. Because if they had said, you have to have it done in 10 days, at that point, I would have been like, I'm not even sure how I can do that. It's not, you know, we, we don't have 24 hour a day music teams that work you know, around the clock for months and months and months. I mean, we've done all nighters when we had to, but that's, you know, we're, we're a small team, nimble. <laughs> Are you back in the, um, when is it going to be quote unquote normal again, where you could get everyone in a room and you could record? Well, I, I'm, we're there. Um, we're there now. I, I just did a, a, an orchestra recording yesterday um, for a project that I, I'm, I'm working on. Um, so I know that when we're, when, when I'm back, recording the score for disco and when i'm back recording the score for picard i'll be back in a room with people it there will still be protocols in place um but i don't know where you are are you in i'm in la okay so in in new york so in la and i don't know what new york's like but in la you know our our covid numbers are super 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 low and everybody seems to be doing a very good job and if as long as we can keep it there then being in a studio with 40 some odd players I mean, we'll all wear masks. That's not a, that big a deal. And um, doing that is not, not all that problematic. Like, like I said, I did go back in October and, and recorded the rest of the season from where I started to where the season ended with, um, with string players and still did brass and stuff in, in uh, their own places. Because at that point we were still unclear about, what it was like for people who were blowing spit into the air because that's what's <laughs> happening when you're blowing into a tuba. Um, but uh, I think that this summer we'll all be back. I won't, I won't start recording the scores for either one of those until sometime in the summer. So I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure. I mean, I'm saying, I'm sure, obviously I'm not, <laughs> nobody knows anything. For, I was going to say nobody's sure of anything right yeah, now. But, yeah. but if I were to, if I were to make it a, a, you know, a good guess, I would say, based on um based on on the way things are right now i think there's i think we'll be doing it just like we did season two so going back to before you even were recording like when you looked at discovery season three which took everything to a whole new setting time-wise obviously did that change your approach to the music like what 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 how did it affect you well you know i've had this question before i i don't look at it like well, we're in, you know, we're a thousand years in the future. It's a different show. Let's write a different score. You know, we're still, we're still discovery. We're still, you know, mostly the same characters. I mean, the Klingon theme didn't come up in this season because we didn't see a Klingon, you know, but there are new character themes. One of my favorites being grudge the cat. That was always the fun, (laughs) fun time to to play grudge. Um, And, uh, 
there were there were new themes for new characters but i approached this i approached the score in basically the same way there's you know emotional moments there are you know solemn moments there are moments of joy there are moments of action there's moments there's there, all these moments had had to be covered um and i think you know there were a couple of things that you know, I got to do that were fun. Like when they come into, um, when they, when they come into star, uh, Starfleet, the headquarters for the first time and you see, you know, you see Voyagers. So I got to do a little tip of the hat to the Voyager, you know what I mean? get to do little fun things like that, that I may not have done in season two or season, um, or season one. Um, but nothing, I would say nothing really changed from a, from a, um, you know, basic understanding of what I needed to do you know position like I, I i wanted to continue how we end up scoring this show and until the producers say hey we want to try something totally different which by the way i have not gotten that phone call for season four um you know my understanding is like we will create new themes we will create new pieces of music and new um new feelings for this for this new place we're in uh, or time for that matter um and uh and and we'll just keep moving forward from there i mean that's the thing like the 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 star trek universe keeps expanding so in that way i get to keep expanding the 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 music pantheon right like i get to keep writing new pieces of music but i still do want them to sound like star trek i don't want them to i don't want them to all of a sudden be something else um, I think we we have sort of found um, found a sound, you know, for this new iteration of Star Trek, and I I, I think that it's important to sort of have a u- unity with that. You, you talk about the Star Trek sound. Star Trek music has been on a bit of a spectrum, and the, the original series was very active, almost over the top at times, and then in the TNG Berman era, it became the famous sonic wallpaper. And you and I think have talked about this before. You know, you're, you're, I don't know, somewhere in the middle, but it feels like season three, the music became more active, more emotional, kind of driving the tone of certain scenes. Is that, do you see it that way? Or is that just how I, you know, us listening? As a composer, I am at the mercy of the narrative, right? So as the narrative does the things you're talking about, as the narrative becomes more active, as the narrative becomes more emotional, or as the narrative becomes more action packed, like that is where I will go. You know, one of the things that I've said in all the interviews I've done about the way I like to score is I like to score what characters are feeling, not what they are doing right? Like scoring what they're doing is treating the audience like they have no eyes. (laughs) They can see what's happening, right? So I want to really get underneath that. I really want to get underneath and, and, and support the emotional content of, of any scene. And sometimes that's tense. Sometimes that's frenetic. Sometimes that's heartbreaking. There's all kinds of things that you can do to really support, um, support a scene in that way. Um, So I would say what what I would say is discovery music has a little bit of all of those things. It has a little bit of the sonic wallpaper. It has a little bit of the sort of emotional context. It has a little bit of the active nature of the original. Now, the thing about the original is that kind of score was pretty groundbreaking. Like the way they were scoring um, the narrative then was pretty groundbreaking. You know, when you hear it now, um, 
it feels uh, it feels somewhat retro, right? Just from the sound of the way they used the orchestra to to do those things, and I think that did was sort of update that and modernize that they modernized everything on the show. You know, they modernized the way it looks, they modernized the way it feels and all of the, you know, all of the, the, the little bits and pieces that you have from a tech perspective, all that got sort of made more modern because we weren't making a, we weren't making a retro show, you know, and we certainly weren't doing sort of like a tongue in cheek new version of it. We were, we were, we're making this very great. We wanted it to be as grounded as it could be and feel like, it meant to be here in this time, you know, right. I think that, but I think that's, that's where, you know, maybe there was a little bit more of that kind of thing in this, in this last season of, of Trek that, that brought that to the table. So going back to the new elements, right. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there were new, so we had the Romulans and the Vulcans and we had the Trill and we had the new characters, uh, Gray and Adira can you talk a little bit about maybe some of your influences? And I feel like um, you're, you're maybe, I mean, you talked about throwing in the Voyager thing, which was fun, but I feel like, you know, it's the third season and you've also done a season of Picard. Like you're, you're not leaning so much into the past and you're charging out a little more onto your own. Is that? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, definitely. I think that you're right. Certainly with discovery, you know, I, I haven't gotten into, to, to um, really, thinking about Picard season two yet. Um, but Picard is a different animal when it comes to how to treat the music for this particular character, right? Um, you know, when season two for Discovery gave me the opportunity to talk about Pike and gave me the opportunity to talk about, I mean, musically talk about Spock, characters that are a part of our, of our, um, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's just a part of the lore of Star Trek, like from our original, from the beginnings of, of where we were, where, where we come from. So I did do a little bit of that leaning on the past for, for that kind of thing. But as we have now moved a thousand years into the future, um, you know, there's bits of that, but there's not as much because now we're forging a whole new set of circumstances. And I really sort of have to, think about the music in that way. I don't want to reinvent, we're not reinventing the wheel, but we are creating new stories that don't rely on the past. Um, They do somewhat in terms of like, you know, talking about um, the Vulcans and what happened to the Vulcans. And I touched on a little bit of our Vulcan theme from season one in, in season three, you may not have even noticed and people might not notice to me. A lot of that is from my own edification. A lot of that is for my own benefit where I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Let me go back and listen to that. um, That one piece I wrote when we introduced um, you know, the Vulcan characters when they were doing the, the mind meld and, and in season one and how that might, how that might affect what I write, how the, how the Vulcans are now. And I don't know, you know, and same with season two and it's, and the red angel theme. I was like, do I bring the red angel theme in here? You know, when, when we, when Burnham's mother appears and it's like, how can I relate those things? How can I, how can I tie this all together? And really what, 
what I try to do with music is tie storylines together. That's really what I think music can do really well. It's like you hear a piece of music and you remember something, maybe not even consciously, and it sort of connects things for, for me. So as we move forward into a, into a new era of, um, and, I, and when I say era, I don't mean like our era, I mean like the era of where they are, as we move into this, this new future and, and solidify our, our place there, um, I feel like new, more new music will, will sort of bear. And I'll rely less on previous thematic material. Although I'm always going to play the courage theme because, you know, that's sort of the basis for everything. As I, as I write themes for any of these shows, um, any of the shows in, in the entire, uh, in the entire world of, of Star Trek, I always look to that theme for some inspiration because it's the beginning of it all. And I, you know, by the way, Goldsmith may not have thought that, um, but he did it, <laughs> you know, he still did in his own way. And I, I feel like that's important to stay grounded and connected to the entire world of it. You know, there've been so many composers, um, so many unbelievably incredibly best of the best composers before I got a chance to, to, to do this. And I, I still pinch myself every time I, I think about that. And I, I still think like, who am I? I can even be spoken in the same sentence as some of these, you know, other composers. Um, and yet I still have to defer, I have to defer some somewhat to them. You mentioned Picard season two. I think you said, I haven't even started yet on Picard season two. Have you actually started on Discovery season four? I mean, they announced it's coming this year, which I imagine is a little bit of a pressure, right? It's about the same as it was last year. Um, about the same timing. Uh, I've, I've already seen emails that I'll get a cut of the first, second, and third episodes coming up soon. So I'll probably start it in, sometime in May. So, I mean, they've already, I've already gotten phone calls from Frakes saying, hey man, I need this and I need that. He's, you know, he's directing, I, I, I'm sure that you know, he's directed yeah. at least two episodes. Um, and there's some stuff that he's doing in it. And, you know, he's, He's like, can you, can you do this? Can you make, give me music for this? And so I've already been in, in touch with the uh, production about it. Whereas with Picard, it's like, you're, it's not even on your radar yet. Oh, it's actually on my radar. They've started shooting and started sending me dailies, but there isn't a, there isn't a thing that I've, I haven't had a cut. Nobody's talked to me about when the, they, it, it'll all sort of overlap. This summer is going to be the summer of Trek for me. <laughs> With Q coming back, how could you not already be thinking about it, right? Well, I, you know, so again, I will say this, I say this all the time. My entry point into Star Trek, the world of Star Trek was the next generation. I, that's my, that's where I grew up watching. And then I went backwards and then, you know what I mean? But the very first Trek, other than the movies, which sort of lived in another sort of world for me, um, because I had seen the original and the wrath of Khan and, and search for Spock and, and all, all of those. But it wasn't until the next generation that I became obsessed and I was obsessed with Q. So th when they announced that Q was coming back, I was surprised because I didn't oh. know. They kept that very under wraps. Very, very, very. Alex never told me. Nobody told me. <laughs> um, and because they probably knew that if they told me, I might have tweeted it or something. <laughs> I tweeted something about it. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. So I will 
you know, again, like Picard has this nostalgia to it. And, you know, so I, I will probably visit those, those episodes to see what was done for him, uh, for that character. I don't, I don't know if that will be meaningful to me. It may or may not be. I, you know, again, the, you know, the, the next generation episode, um, you know, the inner light was obviously a big inspiration for me in this, in this, in the first season. Right. Um, so perhaps I'll find, um, perhaps I'll find something in, in a number of the episodes that Q was in and Q was in a surprisingly few amount of episodes, but such an enormous impact on the, on the franchise. And that, premiere and the finale too yeah. like he opened and closed it sure yeah probably why he had such a huge impact last april when you were doing your last round of interviews for star trek at least you were talking about your pal noah hawley and his exciting star trek movie he was in pre-production and everything was great and then like two months later you know went on pause so my question is do, do you know whether it's still just kind of is it dead or do you think it's still in the mix at Paramount? What have you heard? If I knew, I couldn't tell you, <laughs> but I can tell you that I have no idea. I, I, I have no, I have no idea. Right. I really don't. And I, and Noah and I are, are close friends as well. And I, I don't know that he knows like things, somebody says pause and you pause, you know? I mean, it's uh, definitely I, not the one that they just announced for June, 2023 then. Because they just announced a, a Star Trek movie is coming in two years. I don't know okay. if you heard about that. I did. I heard something about that. I did. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is they announced because they they didn't say what they announced. They just said we're going to release a Star Trek movie in twenty twenty. Yeah. Um. So somebody knows something. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't. And it's not us. <laughs> yeah, definitely not any one of the three of us because I don't. Right. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I I can tell you that I was extremely excited and had already started writing themes for Noah's Star Trek movie, um, themes that may or may not end up in season four of Discovery. <laughs> um, but uh, well, you know who knows. It, so you've read the script, you know everything about it. You saw storyboards, that kind of stuff. There, I hadn't seen any storyboards yet, but I, I did read the script um, and I had already started talking about what the music was going to be. We talked pretty in depth. We always do that before a project. Um, so I did. And it was- And you liked the script, I assume? It was great. It's interesting. You know, Noah, as a writer, Noah is extremely visual. So I, I- when I, whenever I read one of his scripts, it's always extremely inspiring to me. It's how I've always ended up starting to write anything for Fargo. It's how I've always ended up. That's how I always ended up starting to write um, seasons of Legion. Um, so when we work together, it's, it's a very, um, from a very early point in the process. I mean, you're a Star Trek fan. We're Star Trek fans. It's, I know you're excited. Like he's, he's kind of described it as a different you know, it's not, you know, it wasn't going to be another Kelvin movie. He said it, it's going to be his own thing, you know, and it sounded like it was going to be a smaller size thing, not a giant, you know, Marvel movie kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so how do you think Star Trek fans would have reacted to this? You know, is it really that different or just a little different? From a story perspective, no, from a story perspective, I would say it's not, it, it was not all that different. I mean, 
it was different in its voice because Noah has a voice, his writing voice. So in that way, it it may have had a different feel, but it was a very Star Trek story. Um, and it was a very interesting way to tell that Star Trek story, which is what made me so um, excited about it and what has, you know, had me inspired to write music already for it. Um, so it it was, the way he explained it to me made me feel like, the fans are going to lose their mind. <laughs> it literally felt like that to me. Lose their mind. I, I read the script and my call to him was the fans are going to lose their mind because of just what the story was. And, you know, hopefully it'll get. I mean, with Star Trek fans, lose your mind could go either way. So <laughs> I, I would say in a good, good way or a bad way. I would say in a good way. I would say in a good way because would have been telling a story that they hadn't heard, that hadn't been done in a way that would have been very, um, uh, very fulfilling. Finding out answers to questions that have never been answered. I'm cool. losing my mind now. Now I've got to read this thing. Whether it happens or not, you know, I yeah. can't stand, I, now I can't stand not knowing. Yeah. It sounds exciting because I'm a big fan of Noah's and obviously all the work you've done with him. And it's so interesting how different it is. So just this whole thing. is well, a, That's I mean, kind of what I mean about the voice here too. Like the voice made it different. It made it different because of the, the telling of the story was through someone, a voice that is not used, not that, you know, not telling it in that voice, which is what made it so interesting to me. Well, I'm going to ask you one more because I just can't help myself. So, I mean, I, from what I understand, they're, the way they're going forward at Paramount is they're going to do multiple Star Trek movies. Um, and they're not necessarily going to have to be all connected, you know, so it won't be like, you know, a sequel, a sequel, a sequel. They'll be, you know, as 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 people are doing with other things, right? So do you think that this could... Is it, you know, does this require to be part of a kind of sequel, sequel, sequel series, or could it just be its own little one-off? You're talking about Noah's movie? Yeah. Like, let's say they do, they do this movie in 2023 and it's this, it's one thing with a whole different cast. Do you feel like uh, that Noah's movie can coexist with other Star Trek movies released within the same? Without a doubt. It stands totally on its own. It's one of those stories where like, yeah, it can drop right into the middle of the whole thing. It, it'll, it would work in, in a, a totally like they could make one and never go back to it. And it would be totally fine. You know what I mean? Like, and it just be a story right. told so, in the middle of this universe. Right. Like the Joker movie comes out and it's, it's its own thing. And then they go on and do other things with DC and everyone still likes the Joker. You know, if you liked that kind of movie, <laughs> you right. know, but you I know what I mean? Like not that, everybody likes the Joker. Right. But yeah. <laughs> 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 but now that Holly, like when we were talking about all the different possibilities, that's the one we were all the most interested in. Right. Because all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, can a story like this be told by this type of storyteller? And, you know, my answer would be yes. <laughs> Let's see. How fantastic would that be? Can I ask a sort of whimsical question? Sure. So, you know, the cast has, obviously, we know they're all singing on set. They've talked about they want to do a musical episode. Frakes has talked about how we'd love to direct a musical episode. I know it seems insanely unlikely, but if there was a musical episode, is that something you'd want to, like, write songs for? I mean, you have a background 
in that too. Sure. That sounds like a lot of fun. And also those types of things are an enormous undertaking for post-production. It's an enormous undertaking for production, but to because post then becomes a part of both production and post-production, meaning I can't just say, okay, you guys do it and then I'll deal with it later. I have to get it right before they shoot. They have to shoot it and get it right. And then I have to make sure that it's right at the end. It's actually, it's actually kind of, um, kind of, it's kind of difficult, but how, yeah, that would be great to do a musical episode. This is a crazy idea, but would you try to get like yourself and tonic in there maybe? <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. space guitars come on definitely wouldn't do that i definitely wouldn't do that um so yeah no 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 i i'm i like like very much what i'm doing and um in terms of the the this particular w- way of thinking about it it's not a thing that that would that would happen i don't i don't think i kind of feel like a musical episode um in in discovery would be way more of a classy classic feel you know speaking of short treks and you talked about all these great composers how many star trek composers have you had the chance to have discussions with like i'm sure you spoke to michael during the short treks thing are are any of them part of your process well none of them are part of my process um i i've met michael a number of times really fantastic individual um, and also super, super talent. I, I've, I'm actually met Alexander Courage's daughter, had some conversations with her. Um, I've had a number of email correspondence with some various other um, track composers. And, but, you know, that, that doesn't really make it a part of my process. It's, it's sort of like I take the music and assimilate and listen and, um, and and feel it, you know. I, I'm. I wouldn't say that it's it's um, it guides me, but I would say that the the level of quality of the work and the level of the type of work inspires me, and that I that's sort of a guiding principle um, for me. You know, I'm. I was never that understanding of a lot of the episode the episodic music for some of the the next generation because of what happened after season two and they sort of pulled back on the sort of melodic aspect of the music and made it much more sort of um wallpapery but i will say like i talked to to dennis about about that and you know he said we did everything we could to make it musical without sparking the um the ire of the producers who didn't want music to to you know take away from the sound of the show right um and they did a wonderful job dennis mccarthy did a you know wonderful job in 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 making making something be this at the same point musical and also stay out of the way it's a very difficult thing to do um and uh so, but I, but I do sort of look to um, look to the idea of what we do as Star Trek composers as a as a guiding principle for for how I wade my way through the craziness. You mentioned talking to Frakes. I'm just curious about your process because there's so many different directors on all these different shows, or is it mostly just with you and Alex, or is Michelle involved? And then on Picard, is it Akiva? First, I have to say every time. Jonathan Frakes calls me or sends me a text message. I 
fucking freak out. <laughs> it's, it's number one texting me. And if my 51-year-old self could go back and tell my 20-year-old self or my 15-year-old self that in the future, you will be in direct contact with this person. <laughs> I mean, that person, right? Like total mind blown. <laughs> Just want to put that out there. Like I, I sat next to to Jonathan at the season two premiere because he was like, "Yeah, Jeff, come on, sit next to me." I just, you know, I always used to talk to Jerry. He refers to Jerry Goldsmith as Jerry. Jerry. Just talk to Jerry, and like, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting there like you, trying to keep my cool, trying to keep my cool. And you know, let me just say. I've been in a successful rock band, touring around the world, met really famous people, and I'm not really terribly starstruck by many. Jonathan Frakes and I was like, I was beside myself, <laughs> totally beside <laughs> myself. Anyway, I, I would say generally speaking, you know, up to now, it's been me and Alex, like Alex calling me and we're talking talking to Alex about it. Um, I I would say now... Michelle in season three, it was sort of a combination. Michelle, Michelle is, you know, very, you know, has a very clear vision of what she wants. um, And, and which makes my job very simple. Like when a, when a filmmaker knows what they want to hear and then is able to tell it to me, it makes my, my job pretty simple Uh, on Picard in season one. um, Yeah. Again, it was Alex. And now uh, we have a new showrunner. His name is Terry. And um, him and Akiva are are sort of heading that up. So in terms of directors, no directors reach out. Uh, I would say, other than in the pilot of the of um, in the pilot of Picard, Hanel did um, she did reach out to me, and Frakes has reached out. But I think Frakes has has you know has a bit more feeling of like carte blanche. I think I don't know because directors <laughs> don't usually reach out to me. Um, I encourage anybody to reach out to me that needs you know needs something musically but i don't even usually see a cut until it's way past the director's desk you know it's it's usually um the producer's cuts that i i start to think about music so when you start writing are you playing an instrument are you like how what is that process like yeah i mean i sit down i usually sit at a piano I mean, I have my keyboard and a computer workstation and I sit at it and sort of mess around with um, sounds. You know, the the thing about writing for episodic television versus film is your first idea is usually your only idea because there's simply not enough time to sit and go, oh yeah, this is nice, but I'm going to try something else. I, I wish I had that much time, but there's 40 some odd minutes of music in every episode and I, I have a lot a lot to do so um i i usually never get to a version two unless i send it to michelle and alex and they go maybe we could hear something else here um but mainly it's just like little little bits and deviations you know now that we're getting into season four and we sort of have established what what i do for the show musically um you know there's usually the we know you're gonna do this and then we have a special request for here and here and here. And, you know, the score is reviewed and sometimes it's like, we'd really like to 
hit this moment even harder? Or can you do this thing that you did over here? Can you move it over here? Because we really feel like we don't want to be ahead of this emotion or we don't want to be ahead of this thing. Or this isn't feeling big enough. We really want this to feel more grand or, or more intense. Those are the kinds of notes that I get back from Alex and those kind of notes I get back from, um, from Michelle. And that, that's great because emotional, emotional and, and feeling notes and what they want to hear notes are, are great for, for me to be able to, you know, enact those in, in the score. So let's wrap up talking about what we're supposed to talk about, which is the release of the soundtrack. Um, it's out on digital now. Uh, what can you tell us about the vinyl release? Do you know when it's coming and can you talk about the cool I design? I, I don't. I don't actually know when I just know that it is actually coming. Cause I've been told that it's um, it's, it's coming. Um, I don't know anything about the design. I'm going to have to pare down the soundtrack and probably maybe put other tracks that I didn't put on the soundtrack on the, on the vinyl. I, I don't really know what the story is with that, but I do like a vinyl album. It sort of makes me feel like people care about records again. <laughs> it, it feels like you, you and Discovery are part of the end of an era in that season one came out on CD. And I think that's the only season of yours because this is your third, right? Or your fourth because you've got one season yep. of Picard. And and coming into my fourth season of Discovery. Right. Um, yeah, And I, th- I think season one of Discovery was the only one on CD. Is that right? That is correct. So when you were told that's it, it's over, like how did you feel about that the end of that era put up a little bit of a fight you know i put up a little bit of oh come on there's still a lot of people out there like cds and they showed me the numbers and i thought (laughs) oh maybe there aren't a lot of people who buy cds maybe those 10 people who want a cd you know are the last 10 people who buy cds at the end of the day i feel like what's the best way to represent the music right What's the best way to get the music to people to listen to the music? Because really, that's all I care about. All I care about is, can people hear the pieces of music in their musical form without what, you know, without the um, without the added uh, video and, and, you know, all the sound effects and all that stuff? Um, and because that's meaningful to me, you know, I create this music um, and it is nice that people will, will be able to hear it on its own. And the reason why um, people buy and enjoy vinyl is probably because of the packaging. Oh, yeah. I enjoy, I enjoy the sound of vinyl. I actually like to listen to records. Yeah. Now, the reason why I like to listen to records is because you're forced to listen to a record as the artist has in- intended it to be listened to. Um, even with CDs, you were you were able to just skip around. It's much more difficult to do that with records. So I like putting on a record and just listening to it as they wanted me to. But I also like the sound. It's sort of nostalgic for me. I grew up listening to records. Well, we've taken up your whole afternoon, and uh, so we've you know we've delayed the release of Star Trek Discovery season four. Right. Uh, Thank you. I look forward to talking to you again with the release of Picard season two, I guess is the next thing. Yeah. Any guess when that's coming out? Uh, uh, No, I have no guess. They haven't, they haven't told me about a release date. I mean, I think that they have said early 2022, uh, but don't quote me on that because that's just stuff I've heard like online. 
Right. Well, that was our headline. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Russo says. Yeah. Jeff Russo heard <laughs> online that. <laughs> so actually, your next Star Trek release will be Discovery season four. Four. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily. It's not not necessarily in terms of score releases. Like you know, who knows? Maybe we'll delay <laughs> the release of set of Discovery so we can. Re- I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll we'll find out in 2022. Obviously, yeah. so. Have a good summer of Star Trek with your all of this, you know, the shows in production at the same time makes your life so easy. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you get to be with people again recording. It has to make such a huge difference. It does. It does so much. So much. So that was Jeff Russo. Good interview, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it, what's weird is, you know, as, as we noted at the beginning, we've done a lot of interviews with Jeff Russo. But uh, there's always something new to talk about, um, and uh, look forward to the next one, which probably yeah. be some sometime next year. So let's move on to our bits of the week. I will start us off. Sure. Um, so sometimes our bits of the week is something that's not new, but something that's new to us, right? And my bit comes from one of my favorite movies and movie franchises, which is Back to the Future. I was doing a rewatch recently and I was checking out the deleted scenes um, and extended scenes. And so if you remember in the first movie, there's a scene where Marty is trying to convince George to take Lorraine to the dance. And there's a Star Trek reference in the scene in the movie and a Star Wars reference where Marty, you know, he's in the radiation suit and he says he's Darth Vader and he's an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan and he does the Vulcan salute, which is great. But in the extended scene, which I'd never seen before, there there's just like a longer scene and he said there's a lot more going on. And there's another Star Trek reference, which they cut out of the movie. Um, and the reference of Marty in co- trying to convince George, he's, he says, the Supreme Klingon hereby commands you to take the female unit known as Baines Lorraine to the place called Hill Valley High School, exactly four Earth cycles <laughs> from now. So so there's a missing Star Trek reference in Back to the Future on the cutting room floor. So where can other people find this? Well, we'll have a link in the show notes. Okay. Uh, it is on. It is available online. Great. So that's my thing of the week. I'm a big fan of the franchise. All three movies hold up really well. There's some interesting time travel stuff in all of them. So worth a rewatch of the Back to the Future trilogy. Yeah, it's been a while for me. Like maybe since they came out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, what do you got? I got something kind of weird, but um, <laughs> we we have Trek movie viewing parties every week. We just watch a random Star Trek episode. We try to keep it upbeat. And we're watching a piece of the action. And in the scene where <laughs> Jojo Krakow is throwing darts, right, at this poster of Bella Oxmix with these the, tar- the red circles like a target on his face. And Kayla, who's, you know, one of our excellent track movie people said she goes i really want that poster how can we get that poster made and she became obsessed with this poster and so uh i reached out to an artist that we know and love steffi hoshkriegel oh i'm sorry steffi about your last name that i mispronounced um and she mocked up this great reproduction she did an amazing job in i believe less than 24 hours of the poster and so now kayla's already had it 
has a poster up and we're probably going to try and do something with posters and t-shirts because it's such a great design. And then the other funny thing is for all of us who've been watching the show since we were kids, the spelling of Bella Oxmix is Oxmix, which a lot of diehard original series fans know. I consider myself a diehard original series fan and never realized it until that night that his name is actually spelled Oxmix. I'm sure I've been spelling it wrong my whole life. Well, I think that's because Vic Tabak and other people were pronouncing it the yeah. other way. Yes. I did my research afterwards and it was spelled Oxmix, Oxmix, but everybody said Oxmix. So that's how it was. But the poster itself, I'll put up a picture of it because it just looks great. And hopefully there'll be a way in the future for people to um, order it and get their own Bella Oxmix Target t-shirts. <laughs> but it's fun that you know, Kayla is just so obsessive about these things. <laughs> I know. Well, she makes it happen. That was the great part. Because um, John Spencer, who's also <laughs> in our viewing parties, was like, I can get a poster made. So it just turned into this great collaborative thing of of this this poster she wanted becoming a reality within a very short time. And it looks great. So that's fun. And You've made it through another episode of All Access Star Trek. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. And please come leave us feedback. You know, I check that page constantly and get sad when I don't see new comments on it. I'm going to be really honest. <laughs> so please. So we'll be back. This is the last episode of April. We'll be back on May 7th, as we are every Friday. Next week, our guest is going to be Gates McFadden. I can't wait. See you next week. Bye.